Okay, if you're not there already, please turn with me to James chapter 1 and verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12. If you're turning there, I'm going to tell you a story. I read this on the internet this week, so it's uh, got to be true. A uh, guy, guy posted this story about himself. He was in the McDonald's drive through and it was taking a little while to make his payment at the window. And the lady behind him started to get really impatient, and he, she pulled right up behind him on his bumper, and, and she's making eye contact in the rearview mirror with him, and finally she starts honking at him. You know, there's nothing he can do. He can't, he can't speed things up at all. So uh, finally he, he leans in to the, the person who's taking his money and says, hey, what, how much is her ticket? And he's told how much it is. He says, Let me, I'm going to go ahead and pay for her ticket as well, right? So he pays for her food, and then he pulls up to the next window to collect his food, and he, he's looking in the mirror, and she's, you know, kind of, all right, first gets to the window and then realizes that he's paid for her food, right? And then she's not making eye contact with him anywhere. Right? There's no eye contact at all. So he's at the window, he's picking up his food, and he pulls out uh, both receipts for the food that he's paid for, and he takes his food, and then he takes her food. <laughs> and he drives off. And, and some of you are thinking, oh, Oh my gosh, that's terrible. And then uh, some of you are like me, are like, awesome. That's so, like, that's so, that's so clever. That's so smart, right? Now, I, I, I give you that illustration not as a, a moment uh, for confession for me, but rather uh, to illustrate the point that sometimes you're under circumstances and you have no control over those circumstances. All that you control is your response and the pressure of those circumstances can move from a, a trial to a temptation, where you, you begin to, to choose to bend away from the opportunity to grow in patience and kindness and generosity. Instead, uh, there's anger, and you, you move from, from trial to temptation. And really, ultimately, uh, all we have control over in this life is our responses to the circumstances that God allows into our lives. And so what James has been saying as he opened his letter is, uh, you have trials, you have tribulations, you have tests in your life. And what God wants to do is he wants to take those trials and tribulations and, and, and tests, and he wants to use those to form the character of Jesus Christ in you, to bring you to maturity. As you consider it joy, you look through the trial to what God can accomplish through the trial in your character, in your life, but it's not inevitable that you will grow through it and become more mature through it. That depends entirely upon your response to the trial when the trial becomes a temptation. And so this morning I want to talk about how do we, how do we prepare for overcoming that temptation? I'm going to give you just uh, two points. Uh, the first is we need to reject sin as deceit. Okay, reject sin as deceit. And the second, we need to remember God's goodness. So, James chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 12. Reject sin's deception, verse 12. James writes, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So James is writing to a specific group of people who are undergoing specific trials. One of the trials that they're really struggling through is poverty. 
and uh, oppression by the rich, even in the midst of their poverty, that's making their poverty worse, and that's exacerbating, and they're tempted to become angry and vindictive. So there is a specific situation. There are probably some other specific trials they're going through that are going to kind of emerge as we study the book of James. But what James does in chapter 1 is he says, I want to give you principles that apply to all trials, right? So he says, consider it all joy when you fall into various or multifaceted trials. Your trial might be poverty. It might be financial need. It could be your health. It could be a relationship or your marriage or school. It could be anything. And James says these principles apply in all situations. The trial can become a temptation, right? The trial is an opportunity that God wants to use to uh, really uh, bring out and reform the character of Christ and you bring you to maturity. But the trial can turn and become a temptation if you don't respond properly to the trial, if you're deceived by the trial and it becomes a temptation. So uh, in my Bible, I've got New American Standard, and it reads like this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Now there's a kind of a quirk in the Greek language. The word for temptation and the word for trial is exactly the same word in Greek. Did you get that? The word for temptation and the word for trial is exactly the same word in Greek. So you only know, based upon the context, whether the author's talking about a temptation or a trial. And so I'm going to venture a guess that I don't think any of our Bibles anywhere in this room actually translate this verse correctly. It should be translated like this. Let no one say when he is tested, I am being tempted by God. Okay, let no one say when he is going through a test or a trial, I am being tempted by God. So we've just moved from a whole discussion of trials. Okay, what God allows in a person's life or brings into a person's life. And now he's turning the corner and he's going to talk about temptation. So when you are going through a trial, don't be tempted to say, God's trying to destroy me through this. Okay? Let no one say when he is tested, I am being tempted tempted by God. Why? Because God does in fact test people, but God does not ever tempt people. God cannot be tempted by evil. He does not tempt anyone. God does not tempt, but God does test. Okay, make no mistake, God does test. Let me give you just a couple of illustrations. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. It says, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, and it was a big test. Take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him. The son of promise, the one through whom I'm going to fulfill all of my promises to you. I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. It was a huge test. God does test his people, but God never tempts his people. God brings intentionally or allows circumstances in our lives that squeeze us so that we learn endurance, how to remain under. We become strong in our dependence upon God, not passive, but active in our clinging to God, and in the process, he produces maturity in us. Let me give you another illustration. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So was Jesus in his experience in the wilderness, was it a trial or temptation? Well, the Spirit led him to test him. Satan wanted to use those exact same circumstances to tempt him. God wanted to use these trials to refine and demonstrate his son's complete and utter dependence upon him. 
Satan wanted to use these circumstances, particularly Jesus' hunger, to tempt Jesus to reach out and grab something that God had not given, to go against the will of God. So any circumstance in your life, God's using as the trial. Satan wants to twist it and use it as a temptation. So read with me again, verse 14. It says, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is deceit that can lead to sin. Right? So temptation itself is not sin. I think it was Martin Luther said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. Right? So temptation itself, they fly over your hair. Temptation is not sin, but temptation is deceit that can lead to sin if we don't respond properly. So notice how he describes it. Each one's tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Those are uh, hunting and fishing ter- terms. It's, it's the bait on the hook. It's the bait on the hook. Uh, I like to fly fish. I'm not very good at it, but I like to do it. And every time I go uh, to Colorado, I try to, at least one day I get a guide because uh, I'm going to learn something. What's happening in the rivers right now? And what the guide does is the guide uh, really researches w- what are the fish actually eating right now? What kind of bugs are in the water or landing on the water? And we want to make a fly that looks just like that, but also has a hook. So temptation always contains in it uh, maybe a a kernel of truth because it's deception. It it looks good. So when Eve looked at the fruit, she said, you know, it was a, for her, it was a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. In other words, it it wasn't gnarly, nasty looking bitter fruit. There was something appealing about it. So temptation is deceit. And for us to respond well, we need to be prepared for the deceit, right? We need to be prepared for the lies that Satan will put in front of us. The first lie is this, and we need to expose it. God is responsible. God is responsible for this. Read with me again verses 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tested, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. When we are in the midst of a trial, we are tempted to shift the blame to God or to anyone else around us. Listen to this uh, proverb, 19 verse 3. It says, the foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. Ah! (laughs) It's a temptation to turn into blame God. When Adam was confronted for his sin, God came in and said, Adam, what have you done? And what did Adam say? Remember? God, you got me. You're right. I'm 100% responsible. It's fully my, my responsibility. I, I take full blame. For right now, I want to own it. I want to own it. It's on me. Just put it on me. No, he goes, the woman, by the way, that you gave me, right? If, if you had done better, we would, we'd, we'd all be good here. The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. What was Adam? I ate, I ate the fruit, all right? No, I mean, Adam, he does not want to own it. Right? And that, that uh, temptation to shift the blame to others, it is rooted in our fallen humanity from the garden onward. The foolishness of man ruins his own way, but his heart rages against the Lord. I found a great illustration of this. This is from a Metropolitan Insurance Company. Uh, these were explanations given by their clients for why they had accidents 
First, an invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and then vanished. As I reached an intersection, a hedge sprang up, obscuring my vision. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. This is my favorite. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) So the New Testament talks about three sources of temptation. The world, devil, and our flesh. And the world and the devil, those are external to us. The world order, that is uh, the culture around us, the culture of our nation, the culture of our neighborhood, the culture of our family, the culture of our friends, uh, the cultures and order that uh, tempts us and tells us that we can actually figure out life and make it work apart from God. And sometimes it's really overt in its solicitations, and sometimes it's a little more subtle. That's the world order. Uh, Then there's the devil who has uh, his minions who are everywhere, and they're trying to stir up things in our lives to draw us to that broken world order to figure out life apart from God. Those two sources are external to us, and they can't get no traction in our lives apart from the fact that we have something that Paul describes as flesh. That is uh, an, an innate desire to think and believe that our way is better than God's, and that we can make life work apart from God, that our will is better than God, and the world and the devil have an opportunity to get traction in our lives because of our flesh, or what James describes here as lust. Lust, which is actually in the New Testament, it's, it's a neutral word, it just means a really strong passion, and it can be actually a strong passion for good things, or it can be a strong passion for evil things, but the fact is God made us passionate people. He made us emotional people. He actually made us as people who are designed for pleasure. He put us in a world that is a pleasure of a world, and he put us in bodies that are designed to be able to enjoy this world that he has given, but the problem with lust is that we want to grab things that God hasn't given, or in the timing that God hasn't given, but to be passionate and long for things, that's natural. That's part of human nature. Nature. Listen to C.S. Lewis's words. He says this, God not only understands, but shares the desire which is at the root of all my evil, the desire for complete and ecstatic happiness. Catch that? God not only understands, but he shares the desire that is, that is at the root of all my evil, the desire for complete and ecstatic happiness. He says, C.S. Lewis is saying, that's normal. God understands it. God shares it. God's, God wants that for us, to have complete and ecstatic happiness. He goes on. He made me for no other purpose than to enjoy it. But he knows, and I do not, how it can really and permanently be attained. He knows that most of my personal attempts to reach it are actually putting it further and further out of my reach. There is no hope in the end of getting where you want to go except by going God's ways. So, first application point, and I'm going to get, sprinkle these throughout. I'll give you a couple thoughts at the end, but I'm going to sprinkle these throughout. First is this, know your lusts. Hey, know your lusts. Pull out your journal and start to, to list what are, the, what are the things that you are vulnerable to say, you know, uh, I want it now. I want more of it than God has given. Right? I don't Trust what he's given me right now. These are the things. Maybe it's the lust of the flesh, pleasure. Maybe it's the lust of the eyes. You want possession. Maybe it's the boastful pride of life, people's praise. Whatever it is, what are the lusts that you in particular are vulnerable to? 
when the trials and tribulations and stresses of life come upon you, and God wants to use those to reshape the image of Jesus in you, bring you to maturity, what are you tempted to go after? So first lie is this. God is responsible. Second lie, God is not good. Verse 13, let's read it again. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being, or tested rather, I am being tempted by God. It was Oswald Chambers who said, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. That's where uh, Satan started with Eve in the garden. You know, the reason God is not letting you eat of that tree is he's withholding something good from you. God's holding back. God is not good. He put that seed of doubt in her mind. Is God, in fact, good? That's lie number two. God is not good. So what happens to us is a trial comes into our life, and, and we're just struggling to reckon it joy. We're just really struggling to put it into that, the joy column and say, God, I, it's not a good thing, but you can do good from it. In fact, there may be a good in my life that you can't accomplish apart from this, and so I grab hold of it just like Jesus didn't enjoy the cross, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Father, I'm going to lean into this, and we're really struggling with that, and we say, you know, I can't consider it joy. Instead, what rises up inside of us is anger toward God. Okay, we get angry toward God. We're blaming God. We're angry at God because we're suspicious that God means, means to harm us. Read with me verses 19 and 20. Uh, we'll cover these in more detail next week, but I just want to give you a little preview. 19 and 20, James says, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. James is talking here in 19 and 20, not just about anger in general, but that, but that response of anger when I'm in the midst of trial, rather than embracing God's will for my life and accepting it. Shake my fist at God. I'm angry at God because I don't trust that he's good. Okay, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Lie number two, God is not good. It's a really vivid illustration of this uh, also near the beginning of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, where there are two sons that Adam and Eve have. They have Cain and Abel, and Cain and Abel both bring an offering to the Lord. And Abel's offering is acceptable to the Lord, but Cain's is not. We don't know exactly why in the text. But there's something that's wrong in Cain's heart that he's holding back. And this is the interaction between Cain and the Lord. It says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance falling, fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And so when I begin to feel like uh, anger is rising up in my heart toward the Lord, I begin to ask myself, what's the lie that I'm believing? Am I believing that God is not good? Am I believing perhaps that God intends to harm me when told God always wants to do me good. That's lie number two, the suspicion uh, that God is not good. Third lie, sin's consequences won't really be that bad. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tested, I'm being tempted by God. That's just not who God is. God cannot be tempted by evil. He does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So in a sense, sin starts with bad theology. I begin to, to doubt the goodness of God. I wonder if God is actually trying to hurt me or harm me. He's not doing good by me. 
and my theology become, begins to become rooted, and I'm not able to consider it all joy. Instead, anger rises up inside of my heart toward the Lord. And what James says here is that's, that's the, the process. It says now when temptation comes, you believe the lie, and sin becomes rooted in your life, then sin becomes fully grown. It brings forth death. And James actually using the same terminology he used back at the beginning of the chapter when he says uh, when the trial and the test uh, produces endurance and then when endurance is fully grown, when endurance has its intended outcome, you become perfect, mature, complete like Jesus. When sin has its outcome, it becomes fully grown. It gives birth to sin and then it becomes a mature product in your life. The result is death. That is, God is trying to bring forth life and maturity in you and sin brings forth death and destruction. And that death can be spiritual, it can be relational, it can be physical, it can be emotional. It's an experience of, of death. Now, what is James talking about specifically when he mentions death? Remember in Genesis 3, again, back in Genesis 3, Jesus, uh, Genesis 2, actually, Jesus told Adam, he said, now, in the, Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. You will die, die. It's going to happen. You're going to die. In the day that you eat of that fruit. But then uh, Eve ate and Adam ate the fruit, and they didn't physically die in that day, did they? They did not, right? They didn't. But they, ex- begin to, be, they began to experience death, meaning, um, biblically speaking, death is it's separation, right? So in the day that they ate the fruit, even before God showed up and began talking with them, they experienced the separation, between themselves. Uh, They became fearful and suspicious of one another and they had to cover over their nakedness. There was a relational separation. There was death in their marriage. And then there was a death they experienced in their relationship with God and they were cast out of the garden. And then their bodies began to degenerate and eventually they experienced a physical death that is the separation of the spirit, the immaterial part of man, from the material part of man. There was a separation. There was death. So what death is James talking about? I think here James is actually talking about physical death. Because he's talking about the the end or the completion of sin in your life. So when you sin, do you experience spiritual and emotional and relational death? Yeah, it's progressive, right? There's a separation in the relationship when you just a little lie to your spouse or to a roommate or to a friend. There's a separation there's a little bit of sin. There's a separation of intimacy in your relationship with the Lord. And that wedge grows. And, and James is very earthy. Remember, he's very proverbial. I think he's talking about the end product, which we te- tend to ignore, is ultimately this is going to destroy your life. Right? Sin destroys your life. So remember, James is very, very proverbial. He's very earthly in his mindset. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 16 He who keeps the commandment keeps or saves his soul, but he who is careless of conduct will die. So he who keeps the commandment, he's going to extend his life. In Proverbs, if you live well and you live wisely, generally speaking, your life just lasts longer. Is it always true? No, there are exceptions to that rule. But he's saying healthy living, wise living is longer living. On the other hand, when you break the commandments, sin tends to destroy your life. It cuts your life short. That's the, that's the mindset I think that James has as he writes this book. Turn all the way back to the end of the book, James chapter 5 and verse 19. James 5 verse 19. 
my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and then one turns him back, right? So he's, my brethren, if anyone among you, talking to Christians, about Christians who, are, who, are, who have fallen into sin, he says, now if anyone among you strays from the truth and one of you turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's a proverbial phrase, save your soul from death. That is, you're gonna ex- extend his life and health an opportunity to bear witness to God on this earth. So, sin is destructive. It's progressively destructive in your relationships, in your emotional world, and eventually in your physical life. We know this. Intuitively, we know this. Uh, Drugs and alcohol, they shorten a person's life. Uh, I read this week that one in a 100 deaths in the U.S., Sexual immorality is a contributing factor, right? It shortens the life. Greed shortens people's lives. Why? Because they they begin to become isolated, and the more isolated they are, they're more depressed, they're more likely to take drugs and do alcohol or commit suicide or lash out in anger, right? That's greed. Anger shortens a person's life. It raises your blood pressure, makes you more susceptible to stroke and to heart disease. Uh, There was a study done by uh, Iowa State University a few years ago. They released it. They studied 1,300 men over a period of uh, 40 years. And what they discovered is the top uh, 25% in terms of anger, the men who were the most angry, top 25%, they were almost twice as likely to die early. Because sin destroys our lives. So here's your third application. As you're spending time with the Lord, just think about the course of sin. I think it's a healthy exercise. Think about sin, this sin that you're tempted in. What happens five minutes after that sin? What happens five days after that sin? How does that sin affect you in five days? How does that sin affect you in five months or five years? Let's just play it out, right? If you go that direction, how does sin affect your life? Because one of the lies that Satan whispers in and tries to entice our flesh is that sin doesn't, in fact, have significant consequences, but it does, right? Sin destroys our lives. So James' first point is this. We need to be prepared to reject sin's deception. We need to be wise as serpents. Our adversary is like a roaring lion. He is prowling about, and he's seeking someone to devour, and all that he wants to do is wreck your life. That's it. And every time a trial comes into your life, and God wants to use that trial to shape the image of Jesus Christ in you, and he can do that because of his strength and his power and his life, and you have an opportunity to lean into it and to learn endurance and to cling to the Lord, and Satan wants to take that and he wants to wreck your life through it. So what happened to Jesus? He went into the wilderness and he was hungry. He was really, really, really hungry. He hadn't eaten or had anything to drink for 40 days, and Satan says, take, make the stones into bread. Could Jesus do that? Of course he could. He did it later. fed 5,000 easy. And Jesus was the one who was bringing forth water in the wilderness for Israel and bread, manna, right? He was the one, right? So he could do this. He had done it before. But instead of reaching out in his physical lust and grabbing for himself, he said, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He just clung to the Father. Now, I think that the reason specifically that Jesus is brought into the wilderness is to to show a contrast between Jesus and Israel Because when Israel went into the wilderness and they got hungry, what did they do? God isn't good. You know what? 
God brought us into the wilderness to kill us. He means us harm. And it says in Deuteronomy, no, I brought you into the wilderness to test you, to refine you, so that you would be ready to go in and receive the good land that I had prepared for you. But instead, they grumbled, they moaned, they complained, they doubted the goodness of God. They said they doubted that, that God was for them. God wants to harm us. And as a result, they failed. And what happened? Their lives were cut short. They, they, they lost the opportunity to go into the land. On the other hand, Jesus went into the wilderness and he, gave, he took only what God gave to him. He didn't go around God's will. He endured, right? He endured. And he gave us a model for how we endure, right? Jesus didn't do the miraculous, right? He didn't make stones into bread. He didn't pull out his, you know, big divine gun and go, bam, let's get some bread for myself. Instead, uh, he quoted scripture. Because, as we've noted before, he had memorized the book of Deuteronomy. Wow. <laughs> and that's going to be our application point at the end. No, uh, um, <laughs> But he had, he had his father's word hidden in his heart. And so as temptation after temptation after temptation was put in front of him, deceit after deceit after deceit, he turned to the word of God hidden in his heart. And he rejected the deceit. And he waited for God's perfect will in his life. So point one, reject sin's deception. Second, remember God's goodness. Remember God's goodness. Let's read in verse 16, chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. That is, uh, every good thing in your life is from God. And God's intention toward you is always good. In fact, uh, when he says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. That word for generously can also be, be translated singly. That is, that, that is God's single purpose in your life is to do good to you. And every good thing that you have in your life ultimately can be traced back as a gift from God for you. And I know that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around sometimes. You go, no, I, you know, actually I'm... I've done okay for myself. <laughs> I've, earned a, I've earned a bit of this. Uh, I've talked to some guys recently who, um, who got engaged, right? Because it's, it's moving that time, right? You're moving toward graduation. You've got to get out of here with wife. So I've talked to some guys who've gotten engaged, and they're like, you know, Brian, actually, you know, I, I, I kind of did that, right? I mean, I, I dated well. You know, I, I dated well. I dated properly. I checked the right box, and I'm pretty, pretty charming. I've, I've earned that, and I want to say, you know, no, I mean, really, who, who gave you your dashing good looks? That was God. Who blinded her eyes to all of your faults? <laughs> that, was, that was God, right? Or you say to yourself, no, I'm, I'm about to graduate, and I've lined up a job. I did that. Really? Who gave you a mind to study? Who gave you a body that could get to class? Who gave you a personality that's able to be self-disciplined, to stay in the chair and to study? Who caused you to be born in a day and age where college education is an opportunity? Who put you in a family that encouraged you along that pathway? God, 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 God. He put all of these things in, in front of you. Now, were you passive? No, you were active because you took advantage of the opportunities that God gave you, but you should stop and give thanks because every good and perfect gift comes down 
from above, from the Father of lights, he says. He's alluding to the fact that God's creator of everything. Look up in the sky and you see the sun and the moon and the stars. We read about it in Psalm 136. His loyal love is everlasting. You look at the sun and the moon and the stars and you're reminded God is good. God's powerful, he's sovereign, and he's overseeing all of his creation. He's doing good for all of his creation. But unlike the sun and the moon and the stars that rotate through the sky, he has no variation or shifting shadow. He doesn't change. God doesn't change. But we're tempted to go through trials to think God has changed. Now he is not for me. And James says, God doesn't change. There's no variation. There's no shifting shadow. Now, as Mike said, I've been here 30 years. I started at age three. Um, I did not. I did not. I've been around for a while. So I grew up in um, low-tech culture. Um, Saturday was a really big day. For those of you around my age, you remember why Saturday was a big day. It's because uh, the newspaper came on Saturday with the double-page spread of the comics that were in color. And so, you know, we'd, we'd wait, my sister and I, we'd pull out the paper, and we'd go to the comics, and we'd read every single comic in color. Favorite comic, one of them, was uh, Peanuts. I love Peanuts because um, I, I loved uh, what Lucy did to Charlie. It was just really funny to me. And you remember? I mean, over and over and over again, she's like, Charlie Brown, you know, just kick the football. Trust me. I, I, trust me this time. I will not move the football. And what did she do? Every single time she moved the football, right? And Charlie falls and he lands. And, you know, every single time he takes the bait and she deceives him, and he lands hard, right? But he buys into it every time. And sometimes I think we think of God that way. He's just going, yeah, I got something good for you. <laughs> and James says, no. He is singly minded for your good. In him there is no variation. There is no shifting shadow. He never Changes And then James says, let me give you the ultimate illustration of his goodness toward you. Verse 18. In the exercise of his will, that is, this was what uh, delighted him. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. It's the same word used earlier, that sin brings forth death. God brings forth life in us. Same word. In the exercise of his will, what delighted God was to bring forth life in us. He's talking about regeneration. Uh, Peter talks about the same thing in 1 Peter 1. He says, for you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living an enduring word of God. God brought us forth by the word of truth, James says. That is, the gospel message brought you out of death and into life. So again, what is death? Death is separation. We're born into this world, separated from God. We're born into this world uh, without a relationship with our creator. The reason is uh, our sin. We have sin or our independence from God, our, our refusal to go God's way, but to figure out our own way, that's sin and shows up in all kinds of different ways in our lives. But what it does in effect is it creates separation from us. We're born, uh, we're actually born dead because of Adam's first sin. And then we begin to uh, behave like Adam as we grow up and we try to find life independently from God. So we're separated. That's death, spiritual death. And then when we hear the gospel message, 
That is that Jesus died to remove the separation, and we believe the debt of sin is removed, so the separation is gone, and our spirit becomes reunited with God's spirit. That's regeneration. We're born again through the word. That is through the gospel message. The debt of sin is removed, and we have life that will last forever. We have eternal life. We have God life in us, right? A kind of life that can't end. It can't decay. It can't grow old. It can't be taken away. It's God life. We have God's life in us. And we know that when we die, we will live forever and we will once again be resurrected and we will have a restored body that cannot grow old and age and decay and die. We have hope, right? We have hope. And we have hope in this world that we will have uh, God walking alongside us through trial. As we said last week, we do not have the hope or the promise that we won't go through trial or that we'll be rescued out of trial. God doesn't make that promise to Christians. Instead, what he says is, I'm going to walk with you through the trial. And as I walk with you through the trial and you cling to me, the world's going to see that and they're going to say, there's something that person has that I don't have and I want it. That's what James says, means when he says he has caused you to be born again uh, so that you would be a first fruits among his creatures. That is, when the world sees us suffering in the same way that they suffer, but we're not angry and we're not bitter. Instead, uh, there's, there's a softness that grows in us and a kindness and a generosity and a patience and a joy and an ability to love and do good for others even when we're struggling and suffering. And the world says, I don't have that. What that points them to is that there's something more to life than they have. And it draws them to Jesus. On the other hand, we go through trials and struggles and sufferings. We get angry and bitter. There's nothing different about us. Okay, so I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Read this in Romans chapter 8. In verse 22, Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with endurance we wait eagerly for it. So two application points for you uh, this morning. The first is this. Uh, I want to challenge you this month, okay, for an entire month, 30 days, I want you to practice thankfulness. Uh, if you're a journaler, get out your journal and every single day, you just write a few things that you are grateful for. Start with uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Start with the gospel, that God has taken you out of death and into life, and you received it as just a, a free gift. What an incredible gift. Um, if you don't know Jesus this morning as uh, your Savior, let me encourage you, uh, the best thing you can do this morning is just to say, thank you, Jesus, for that good gift, and receive it. And then start giving thanks for other things that God has placed in your life. Think, think of everything. Just get creative. And on days you're really struggling, some days I'll go, you know, thank you, Lord, uh, for the color blue. You could have made the whole world black and white or gray. Man, there's color. Thank you for color. Thank you for food that tastes good. I just, just give thanks, right? So take out your journal 
and begin to write things every single day for 30 days, things that you're grateful for. If you're not a journaler, uh, get out your phone, make a note, pull up your notes. Okay, but the act of rehearsing what we're grateful for is transformative. I would say that it's, it's maybe uh, the most uh, powerful spiritual discipline that I've ever experienced in my life is just the practice of gratitude. When I'm off base a bit, uh, it's usually because I'm not giving thanks. Uh, second, spiritual discipline that's hugely transformative for me is scripture memory. So when my mind is idle, I have something to put my mind on because I have verses that I've memorized. So I want to challenge you to memorize two verses this week. Uh, James 1, verses 17 and 18. Read it again. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Those two verses are just packed with good theology. God is good. Don't believe the lie that he's not good. He is good. And he's demonstrated that goodness by giving you life in his son, Jesus Christ, right? So let's just put those verses in our hearts and minds and let them just marinate and transform the way that we think about God, ourselves, our circumstances, our calling to be first fruits and point people to the hope of Jesus' return. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are good. And I thank you, Father, that in your kindness and your goodness and in your sovereignty, you are able to take even the worst circumstances in our lives and you're able to produce something beautiful from it. I thank you, Father, that in your goodness, you don't call bad things good, but that you take bad things and you can uh, reshape them so that we can be blessed and benefit from them. I pray that we would embrace your will. I pray that we would not doubt your character. I pray, Father, this week that uh, we would be renewed and refreshed in our confidence that you're a good heavenly Father and that you love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.